After making love, he suddenly attacked her. Cruel tortures like the Middle Ages. After beating and torturing her with pliers and hammers, he raped her again. This was repeated for three consecutive days before he used a knife to end the life of the young prostitute by cutting off each part of her body from head to toe, hands, genitals. In his thirst for blood, he continued to call a prostitute again. Welcome back to our channel. Today we will come to a murder case that could not be more brutal, a case that shook beautiful Hong Kong to the core. The case was so grisly that people here had to close all the doors and dare not go out for many days. I am telling you about the bloodthirsty murder case of Rorik Jutting of two Indonesian prostitutes, Sumarti Nengsi and Sineng Muji Asi. He also gloatingly recorded photos and videos of his cruel tortures, as well as more than 2,000 photos of Ningsi's body parts captured clearly. As soon as they arrived at the scene, the authorities could not help but be surprised by the scene in front of them. So who is Rurik Jutting? What motivated him to act so scary? Is it instinct or is there a mystery behind it? Why would someone with a background like Rorik Judding commit such barbaric crimes? Take a deep breath and join us through the door of darkness to unravel this horror case. However, the film for today takes us to a city that prides itself on being known as the Pearl of the Orient. So, without further ado, let me officially welcome everyone to Hong Kong. Now. Hong Kong has a very lengthy and complicated history, but concentrating on its structure in the modern day lets us contextualize its many peculiar and one-of-a-kind dynamics, something that you will soon discover is essential to the current situation. So, where shall we start? If you mention the word Hong Kong, most of us will immediately think of the city's numerous skyscrapers and other structures, which is only natural given that it is one of the cities with the highest population density in the entire world. The fact that it is both on an island and at the foot of a mountain means that space in this city is an absolute luxury. And with 7.5 million people crammed into a space that is only 430 cubic miles in volume, before we get ahead of ourselves here, there are about 18,000 individuals living per square mile in this area. Living in Hong Kong might genuinely provide one with a great many advantages. It has a culture that is absolutely bursting at the seams, and its medical treatment is among the best in the world. It holds the fourth spot on the Human Development Index. In addition, the average life expectancy of women in Hong Kong is 88.2 years, making it the highest figure recorded anywhere in the world. However, when population density is taken into consideration, a number of other problems become apparent. For instance, there is a significant issue when it comes to the disparity in wealth that exists inside the city. Hong Kong has been recognized as having the least affordable market anywhere in the world for the past 12 years in a row. And things are just going to get worse from here on out. As a direct result of this, 
Hundreds of thousands of its citizens are being compelled to live in homes and flats of a significantly reduced size. And if you are familiar with Hong Kong in any way, shape, or form, you can probably guess where I am heading with this, and that destination is caged dwellings. Sadly, this is the reality for thousands upon thousands of people who call this place home. Find one or two of your favorite shirts and pack the rest of your possessions, including the box, into the smallest possible space. So put it another way, you won't have any room in a cage home for anything else, which, by the way, is normally around 75 square feet less than a parking space. In addition to these factors, there are others that contribute to the high cost of housing in this city. One of these factors is the extortion of land auction prices, which serves to compensate for the city's low tax rates. However, to keep things brief and not to sweep, the cost of living in Hong Kong is extremely high. Migrants from nations in the surrounding area are one of the primary populations contributing to the severity of the situation. Many of them go to Hong Kong because of its high rate of inflation. This is because countries with higher costs of living typically have higher average salaries. Because of this, whatever money is left over at the end of the month can be stretched considerably farther when the person returns home, which helps to segment this group even further. But one of the most significant groups of migrants are women from Indonesia and over 150,000 people from that country currently reside in Hong Kong and work as maids, nannies, and other types of domestic workers, all of which offer their respective services to members of the middle class and above in Hong Kong. Now, life in Hong Kong as a domestic helper isn't exactly a walk in the park. The demands of the employees are extremely high and they show no mercy to the workers who are attempting to readjust to life in the large metropolis. The shifts are lengthy, and the work itself is strenuous and time-consuming. Domestic helpers start their day by getting up early, providing care for the family's children, preparing meals, and cleaning the house before leaving. And some people will even go back to their own homes and repeat the process for their own families. Even with all of this hard work, the income would only be about $500 per month, which is not very much when considering the cost of living in Hong Kong. However, for migrants who come from economically deprived places, that is a very significant distance. The wealthy people of Hong Kong see all of this in a completely different light, of course. And among the wealthiest people in Hong Kong was a British banker by the name of Rorik Jotting, who was 29 years old. In the year 2014, Rorik was in the midst of his transition into his 30s. In Hong Kong, he was employed by Bank of America Merrill Lynch, where he held the positions of vice president and head of structured equity finance. It goes without saying that this meant he was generating a significant amount of money, roughly 400,000 United States dollars each year. To be more precise, dollars per year from the U.S. The past of Rurik is one that is filled with good fortune and contentment. 
When his parents got married in 1984, they were both living in South London at the time. Before conceiving Rick in March 1985, his father was an engineer who worked for a local company and had an interest in classic motorcycles. Rorick was conceived around this time. In addition to this, his mother operated a milkshake bar in Woking that was modeled after those seen in the United States. Both of them possessed a high level of intelligence, and they worked extremely hard to build a modest fortune for their family. The Toad Hall depicted in the timeless novel The Wind in the Willows was modeled after the illustrious home Fox Warren Cottage, which belonged to the Judding family and was given a distinguished grade two listed status. And despite the fact that the family had a comfortable income, their financial resources were not without limits. It is widely known that both of Rorick's parents were willing to forego a great deal of income in order to send him and his brother to a prestigious private school. Rorick went to Wallop School in Waveridge, where his educators described him as a bit of an oddball who wasn't all that well-liked by his classmates. After he completed his secondary education, he was enrolled at Winchester College, which has an annual tuition fee of approximately £34,000. That comes out to almost $40,000 for those of us living in the United States. After that, Rurik was able to get a spot for himself at Cambridge University, where he majored in law and history while residing in Peter House, a constituent of the university. After receiving his degree from Cambridge, Rurik went on to begin a distinguished career in banking, proving to his parents that the financial investments they made were not in vain. He began his professional life at Barclays Bank and later moved on to work at the Merrill Lynch branch of the Bank of America in London. Later on, he moved to Hong Kong to work as an equities trader. This was a position that netted him a large sum of £350,000, which is equivalent to $400,000 per year. He continued to work in the same industry. In addition, he rented apartment 3,109, a lavish apartment located on the 31st floor of one of Wan Chai's most prominent residential buildings. This was done so that he could make the most of his enormous wage packet. However, his work did not come without certain drawbacks. Because of the size of his income and salary, he would be required to put in significant amounts of effort, face massive amounts of pressure, and make significant decisions regarding the company. Now, I'm sure the money was nice, but if you're always busy and unhappy, then you're never truly going to appreciate the lifestyle that it can provide for you. This is true even if the money was great. This was reflected in Rurik's day-to-day disposition, as he frequently reported to his friends, co-workers, and fiancé that he was stressed out and melancholy. And regrettably, he also considered ending his own life by killing himself, when the subject of Rorick's previous relationships was brought up, it was revealed that none of them had ended particularly successfully. In the year 2010, Rorick fell in love with Sarah Butt, 
who was a co-worker at Barclays Bank. Sarah's full name is Sarah Bott. Sarah was a responsible yet enjoyable woman to be around. And even though the two of them discovered love in London, she ultimately relocated to New York on a one-year second after she had been there for a year. During this time, she fell in love with another man. And when the two of them began having an affair, Rorick went ballistic-like. As a direct consequence of this, she decided to run away from him and went back to New York the exact same day in order to do so. And despite the fact that the partners made efforts to reignite their love for one another and were even engaged for a brief period of time shortly after the affair, they just couldn't get over it and decided to dissolve their relationship shortly thereafter. After relocating to Hong Kong, he began surrounding himself with stunning ladies from the area. He did this in order to brag about his new life to his old pals who were still residing in England. He did this through a series of Facebook posts and other online updates. Around this time in July 2014, Rurik first met Ariane Guerin, who is also known by her nickname Yanni for short, and eventually fell in love with her. From this point forward, Several of his pictures depicted her donning the expensive necklaces and rings that he had purchased for her, giving the impression that the two were head over heels in love with one another. On the other hand, Rurik was developing a seedy and gluttonous side to his character on the inside. He started getting more and more obsessed with orgies, and during drug-fueled parties, he would frequently have sex with two or three women at the same time. In addition to this, he gave up all of his current hobbies and interests and increased the amount of reckless spending he does on a regular basis. In addition, by September 2014, he and Ariane had ended their relationship as a couple. A former official in the police department claims that his binge drinking sessions transformed him into a hostile and zombie-like individual. And because there were no monetary constraints placed on his spending patterns, he simply continued to do it. And the further he went into the cave, the worse he got. I mean, you might say that the man exemplifies the phrase work hard and play hard. When things got too much for him, he would work for 16 hours straight, work days, and then try to make up for it all by getting high, throwing parties, and drinking. Friends saw that during all of this, he was acting more aggressively, taking more chances, and acting more aloofly. It appeared as though the man had lost his mind. On Monday, October 27, 2014, Rorick published a status update on Facebook in which he said, Stepping down from the ledge, my new journey begins. The first step, which is typically the most difficult, is always met with fear and anxiety, but also with excitement. After that, he quit his employment, and as part of the process, he updated the message that would appear in his outgoing emails to read, I am out of office indefinitely. Please contact someone who is not a completely deranged sociopath if you have any questions at all, let alone urgent questions. Please contact God regarding escalation. 
but be aware that the devil is likely to gain custody of it. The previous paragraph is only effective in the case I had. Later on, during the very same week, there were two reported missing persons in Hong Kong. Nobody really paid attention to it because, tragically, over 4,000 people vanish in the city every single year. The fact that they were both young women who went missing in the same location within a span of four days of one another is what made this case particularly peculiar. They were last seen together in the vicinity of Wan Chai, which is a residential neighborhood located within Hong Kong. And to make matters even more complicated with regard to earnings, the two of them came from backgrounds that were somewhat comparable to one another. A young woman by the name of Sue Martinengsi, who went by the nickname Alice during her childhood, was the first person to go missing. Sue Marty grew up in a small village located deep in the rural countryside of central Java, Indonesia. Sue Marty left Indonesia in 2010, when she was only 19 years old, in order to look for work in the metropolis. When you live in the middle of nowhere, you run into the dilemma that there are fewer opportunities to earn money. And one of the things that was really important to Sue Marty was to be able to provide for her family. She responded to the advertisement by applying for a position as a domestic helper in Hong Kong. Having said that, this did not come without any sacrifices on anyone's part. It was necessary for Sue Marty to give up her child who was already fatherless because his biological father had abandoned the family soon after the child was born. Without a shadow of a doubt, Sue Marty was an exceptionally kind and generous young lady. She made it her primary objective to take care of the family's financial needs. And that is what she did. She paid for the necessary repairs to be made to the family home throughout the course of the subsequent months and years. In addition to that, she invested in a washing machine and afterwards contributed items of comfort, such as DVD players and guitars. When Sue Marty arrived back in 2013, she stated that she was worn out at this point. She wasn't satisfied being a housekeeper and wanted to expand her horizons professionally. In light of this information, she decided to enroll in a DJ school so that she could pursue her love. The year after that, she went back to Hong Kong with a tourist visa and some newly acquired abilities. It was her dream to become a DJ, but in the meantime, she planned to work at cafes to make ends meet. During this time, her family did not engage in much conversation on the location of her place of employment. However, she did affirm that she would go back to Indonesia at the beginning of November 2014 because her tourist visa is set to expire on November 2nd. This would certainly make a lot of sense given the circumstances. You are not permitted to work in the country if you have a tourist visa. Therefore, what Sumardi was doing qualified as a violation of the law. Friends of hers who lived in the area knew that she was staying in a boarding house that was operating illegally close to Wan Chai, which is located south of Victoria Harbor. In the evenings, 
You might also find her most nights at the McCarthy Pub and Disco. Therefore, it seemed quite plausible that she was working covertly there for cash in hand, and that was what she was doing. And despite the fact that she could have been seen anywhere else, her friends would recall seeing her here the very last time they did. The McCarthy was notorious for being a rowdy bar that catered to customers from two very different age groups and had a smoky, dark, and dismal atmosphere. That would be young immigrant women and men living in the country who are nicely dressed. And I'm sure you can figure out why that is. The men would pay the women to dance, flirt with them, and tease them in exchange for money and beverages. The bar would let the ladies engage in these activities in exchange for a tiny portion of the profits made by the establishment. It was ultimately up to these ladies to decide whether or not they wanted to keep their job contained within these four walls. But theoretically speaking, there was nothing preventing them from following these guys home once their shifts had ended. On the one hand, this is a very high-risk enterprise. But on the other hand, the money that was involved was quite profitable. It brought in three times as much money as doing chores at home. Therefore, it's possible that this is what Sumardi said. And then, just six days before her visa was supposed to expire, Sumardi vanished without a trace. Jessie Lorena was the second young woman to go missing after that. Named Sineng Muji Asi. She was more comfortable going by her nickname, Jessie. Jessie and Sumardi had quite a few parallel experiences while they were both in Hong Kong. She was born in 1984 to parents who made their home in the Muna Regency of Southeast Sulawesi, which is one of the numerous outlying islands that are owned and inhabited by Indonesia. And Jessie's childhood was quite similar to Sumardi's in that both of their homes were in areas where there was a lack of money. In April 2006, Jessie uprooted his life and relocated to Hong Kong. In addition, during the years 2010 and 2012, she worked as a domestic worker after successfully acquiring a work visa. Following the expiration of her employment visa, she made a quick trip back to the United States before boarding a flight to Hong Kong on a vacation visa. Now, once again, tourist visas do not allow you to seek a legal job while you are in Hong Kong. This is an issue since nobody who is legitimate will employ you if you do not have the appropriate documents. As a result, she resorted to finding labor beyond the law, which very certainly meant doing sex work. And to make matters even more precarious and happily, she overstayed her tourist visa, which had run out over a month before. This made the situation much more precarious. As opposed to Sumardi's disappearance, Jessie's lasted for a significantly shorter amount of time. Jessie was the next person to go missing after Sumardi vanished four days earlier. Jessie is seen dancing in the disco at the New Makata pub on November 1, 2014, at 1.35 in the morning, according to security footage that has not been made public. The camera caught her having a conversation with a regular customer of the pub, 
who turned out to be none other than Rurik Jotting. The conversation was captured on video. Another security camera took a picture of the pair as they left the bar together at 2.15 in the morning and then proceeded to walk toward his residence, which was located only a few minutes down the road. They arrived at his apartment 3,109 together a few minutes later, and that was her last known form of contact with him until around an hour later. Jesse sent a friend a message at 3.25 in the morning, telling her that she had become uneasy while he was there. The apartment had a foul odor, and there was clearly something wrong with it. It was said in the SMS message that something reeked really badly. I really need to leave this place. And regrettably, these are the last words that are known to have been spoken by Sening Muji Asi. At 3.42 in the morning, a call was placed to the Wan Chai Police Department using a calm and collected tone, and Rorik Jutting could be heard on the other end of the line. He demanded that they begin the investigation into his residence right away. He contacted them two more times while they were driving and informed them that something terrible had occurred at his apartment and that they needed to get there as soon as possible. Upon arrival, they discovered a knife measuring 12 inches long, sex toys, and a significant quantity of cocaine. And regrettably, that was just the start of things to come. A body was found on the floor of the living room, lying in the middle of the room. Jessie was unclothed and had cuts all over her body, including her neck, throat, and buttocks. In addition, despite the fact that she was still alive, she was in a bad condition and was losing a significant amount of blood. Unfortunately, by the time the paramedics came, it was already too late and she was pronounced dead. As the officers gazed on in horror, Rorik was covered in her blood and spoke incoherently while he was in the throes of delirium. Unsurprisingly, the individual was taken into custody right then and there. After that, a very detailed and grisly examination of the crime scene got underway. In all honesty, it would take forensic investigators eight hours to make their way through the living room, the bedroom and onto the balcony. When the door to the balcony was open, a smell that could only be described as putrid filled the room. Over the course of the previous two to three days, several residents had indeed complained about the odor, and now the officers knew for certain where it originated. They discovered a huge black suitcase with the body of a second victim inside. The luggage was recovered in the same location. Unfortunately, during the course of the next few hours, it was determined that the deceased person was Sue Martin Ngsi. Rorik Jutting, a British investment banker, has reportedly made an appearance in court in connection with the deaths of two ladies who were found in an affluent apartment in the Wan Chai district of Hong Kong. The 29-year-old defendant did not enter a plea during the process of the charges being drafted. After the bodies of two ladies, thought to be of Indonesian descent, were discovered in a residential complex over the weekend, Judding was taken into custody for their murders. Jesse Lorena and Samat Reningsi have been identified as the people who were killed in the attack.
It is thought that both of the women work in the adult entertainment industry and that the area is a known red light district. It was also alleged that the cops discovered a minor amount of contraband and sex toys at the scene of the crime. Now, as part of the official inquiry, officers combed through the contents of Rorick's mobile phone, and what they found was extremely horrifying. This information was discovered by the officers. Officers discovered almost 2,000 photographs and hundreds of recordings that had been made during the course of Rorick's actions, which had all taken place over the course of three days. He had taken more than a thousand images, most of which had a sexual undertone. To add insult to injury, some even included the head of Sumardi, which had been cut in two places. He also recorded himself while rambling to the Camry about various elements of his life and the crimes he has committed. He also did this while recording himself. Rurik had filmed himself babbling in front of the bodies of his victims for more than four hours, and he had captured all of it on camera. And despite the fact that the majority of the footage has not been made available to the general public, here is a substantially simplified version of what is currently known to the general public. My name is Rurik Jodding. This woman over here was just slaughtered and murdered about five minutes ago by yours truly. It's the evening of a Monday. Since the early hours of Saturday, I've had her under my control. Although she was a decent person, which makes me feel a little bit guilty. I don't really feel guilty about what I did. Even though my hand is still trembling and I have a queasy stomach, I do not feel guilty. But it's obvious that I have an impression. I'm at a loss for words to explain what it means. I cannot place myself in this body. The past seven days have been primarily spent dozing off on the couch. Coke, alcoholic beverages, and food are the things that get me out of bed in the morning. And I've had a lot of Pete's Express, lasagna. I've been waiting for the police to kick me out of here. It is possible that some people would view this as the self-absorbed babblings of a killer, which is, of course, accurate. I just wanted to let you know that I am obviously insane. I have, however, piece together all of the sections of this transcript that are accessible to the public. It is somewhat longer than this version and delves into a great deal of specific information. Despite the fact that Rurik admitted to having killed both ladies, he entered a not guilty plea to the charge of murder on the basis of diminished culpability. However, he did enter a guilty plea for the lesser charge of manslaughter. Because Rurik's conduct was so unnaturally cruel and filthy, and because it was obvious that he had been under an enormous amount of stress in his younger years, the court was concerned about his mental health. After doing medical evaluations on him, he was evaluated by four psychiatrists, and all of them came to the same conclusion. They came to the conclusion that Rurik Jutting was mentally capable of standing trial and the only condition they identified in him was narcissistic personality disorder. In light of the aforementioned, his trial started in October of 2016. During the course of his trial, 
Rurik asserted that he and Sumardi had first come into contact with one another at a nearby hotel during a period of six days in which he hosted a large number of sex workers for the purpose of consuming cocaine and having fun. On October 27, he saw Sumardi for the second time, and during that encounter, he made the proposition that he would pay her H. Kedan $1,000 if she spent the night with him. And sadly, in the end, this resulted in a three-day period of excruciating pain. During this time, Rurik tortured Sumardi over the course of three arduous days beginning at 12.51 p.m. By using his fists in addition to sex toys, pliers, and a belt, a surveillance camera showed him exiting his flat on October 31 after he had finished off Sumardi and shortly after the camera had been activated. A little over one hour later, he brought a number of bags stuffed with various pieces of hardware and tools back with him to his house. He had purchased a blowtorch, hammer, nails, pliers, and send paper from a home improvement store, all of which were included in one of the bags. After he got back to his house, he dropped his things and went back out into the neighborhood. From there, he made his way to the Makata pub and nightclub, where he started looking for a second victim to rob. After he had his sights set on Jesse, he convinced her to visit him at his residence. It is common knowledge that the two began conversing in the wee hours of the morning. At approximately 2.15 a.m., the pair went to his residence, and less than one and a half hours after being there, she was found dead. It goes without saying, but the mountain of evidence that was placed in front of Rorick Judding was insurmountable. During his trial, the prosecution presented evidence including security footage, bodies found in his flat, receipts, emails that appeared to be suspicious, and, last but certainly not least, over 2,000 photographs and over four hours of videotaped confessions. During the proceedings of Rurik's trial, the judge, Mr. Justice Michael Stewart Moore, lashed out at him, calling him an arrogant man who plumbed the depths of depravity as he snorted cocaine and neck beer to fuel his underlying bloodthirst. Rurik was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. The 8th of November, 2016. After an official investigation, Rurik Judding was held responsible for the murders of Su Martineng Sivas and Neng Muji Asi. Naturally, there was not a single dissenting vote in the jury's deliberations. After the judge had finished reading the verdict, Rurik did not show any signs of emotion and instead remained still in the back of the courtroom in the dock. This was in stark contrast to the majority of the attendees who cheered and expressed their satisfaction with the ruling. As a consequence of this, Rorik Jodding was given two separate terms of life in prison that would run concurrently. In the past, Rorik had accused him of being a psychopath, a narcissist, and a killer. Yet, despite the fact that he was correct in all of these accusations, he failed to emphasize his privileged yet predatory behavior. Rorik almost had it all. 
He was blessed with parents who cared deeply for him and were willing to make financial sacrifices on his behalf. Because he was one of the greatest earners, he had the financial means to indulge in virtually any activity of his choosing. This was the exact opposite of what happened to his victims, who were unable to pay nearly anything, were among the lowest earners, and gave all of their money to support their families back in their home countries. And when all of this is taken into consideration, it is quite awful to see that Rurik hunted individuals who suffered because of the exact parameters that he took for granted. When you stop and give it some thought, you'll realize that it's a very tragic tale. Sumardi and Jesse were women from impoverished areas in rural Indonesia who put in a lot of effort every day. Both of these women put in a lot of effort to support their families back home financially, and it doesn't matter what you think about the secondary employment they chose to undertake because they did it. This sometimes required them to put their personal well-being at jeopardy, and despite the fact that their work and responsibilities were onerous, they nevertheless managed to send whatever they could back home with love. Recent estimates suggest that there are more than 34,000 people working as domestic servants in Hong Kong, which is a very unfortunate fact considering that they are not a minority. According to some research, the typical domestic worker puts in more than 71 hours of work during the course of a single week. This occupation can be very hard. In addition to this horrifying number, Approximately one in six of these individuals is subjected to severe emotional and slash or physical abuse. In a nutshell, this case does a great job of drawing attention to the problem that Hong Kong has with vulnerable women being put in dangerous situations. And despite the fact that authorities are exerting a lot of effort to eradicate this pervasive issue, and despite the fact that Hong Kong has an exceptionally low murder rate, Women are nonetheless subjected to everyday acts of violence and abuse in this city. After several days had passed since Samarty's passing, her body was brought back to Jakarta by plane and then taken to her hometown from there. She was laid to rest in the graveyard of her hometown not long after this event took place. Her close friends, members of her family, and many of her neighbors were present at the ceremony that took place early in the morning. The body of Jessie was also brought back to her family in southeast Sulawesi when it was found. Her brother referred to her as the backbone of the family because of the consistent money that she sent back to the United States to provide for them. An interview was conducted with Rorick's most recent ex-girlfriend, and during the conversation, she stated that she still loved him and believed that he was a wonderful man. This is one of the few side notes that pertain to this case. I am quite grateful that you are here with me today to discuss yet another case. I can't tell you how much I value your presence right now. As always, I would appreciate it if you would make sure to leave your opinions in the comment part down below and I will see you very soon for another scenario. However, until that day comes, I ask that you all remember to watch out for one another and keep yourselves safe. Thank you and farewell, you.